The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. David Vendrunen. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. I would like to reflect meditate with you this morning on 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to be primarily concerned with verses 19 through 22, but I'll read verses 12 through 24. 2 Corinthians 1 verses 12 through 24. Hear the word of God. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. This ends our reading of scripture. Now, in this larger section here in First, Second uh, Corinthians one, we see that Paul is uh, concerned to address some consternation that apparently the Corinthians had over these change of his plans for travel, and he wants to stave off the conclusion from these Corinthian Christians that he should be judged negatively for these change of plans. He asks um, in verse 15, uh, or uh, let's see, in verse 17, he asks, uh, was I, as the ESV puts it, was I vacillating when I wanted to, to do this? Was I making these plans lightly? And he says in the next phrase, do I make my plans according to the flesh? Perhaps picking up something that he said uh, a few verses earlier in verse 12, when he, he notes that he has not conducted himself by 
what the ESV has is by earthly wisdom, but that's by fleshly wisdom in the Greek. He's not, uh, he doesn't want him, the Corinthians to judge him as if he is a vacillator, as if he makes light plans or plans lightly, as if he is operating according to a wisdom, according to the flesh. Now, in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 1, he says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Now, if we're just reading this for the first time, maybe as the Corinthians are reading this, we're reading this for the first time, we might expect Paul to say something like the following. My word to you is not yes and no. What in fact my word is, is when I say yes, I mean yes. And when I say no, I mean no. It would sort of make sense of what Paul seems to be getting at, that we shouldn't think that he's just saying things lightly, that he takes, doesn't take his word seriously. We expect Paul to say, my word is good. What I say to you, you can take seriously. You can take it as true and faithful. But did you notice that that's not what he says in the verses that follow? He doesn't make the case that whenever I say yes, I mean yes, and whenever I say no, I mean no. What he says instead is, I only say yes. My only message is yes. He says in verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Paul says, you see it here, he says, what we do is we preach Christ, and the word of Christ is always yes. And then he goes on at the end of verse 20 to say, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In light of these, this constant message of yes that we have in Christ, we utter our amen in response. And then Paul gives these very encouraging, comforting remarks in verses 21 and 22, that God has established us in Christ, he's anointed us, he's given us a seal, and he has poured out his spirit in our hearts as this guarantee. Then there are two more verses that I read, and it actually seems in these last two verses that Paul gets back to where we may have expected him to go in the first place. He explains why he didn't come to Corinth, even though he had obviously given some indication that he was going to come to Corinth at an earlier point. He explains that it was for their good. It was to spare them that he didn't go to Corinth. It was for their faith and for their joy that he did not make that visit that had been planned. You see, it seems as though we could almost skip from verse 18 to verse 23, and it would make good sense. Paul doesn't want them to think that he's some kind of a vacillator, one whose word is not good. So he could explain why it is he didn't come, not because he's dishonest or not trustworthy, but because he was for their well-being. It almost seems that verses 19 through 22 are a kind of an interlude, an interlude in which Paul makes a case for something that's not exactly on point. What is it that Paul is really trying to accomplish in these verses 
that seem to be a little bit tangential. Well, let me suggest that what Paul is doing here in verses 19 and 22 fits with a larger theme of the wisdom of God in Christ that we find both in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Paul, one of the things Paul wants the Corinthian church to understand is that they should not understand the wisdom of God in Christ as simply a kind of natural earthly wisdom done right. I think there is a kind of an earthly natural wisdom, a kind of wisdom that comes through the experience and observation of this world, a kind of wisdom about which Proverbs says a lot, a wisdom that informs us how we can live well in the ordinary things of this world and achieve a certain success in the things that we undertake. There is a kind of valid, earthly, natural wisdom. And we might be tempted to think that when Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, appears, he just perfectly exemplifies that kind of wisdom. That's a kind of wisdom that understands the importance of being honest understands the importance of being faithful to your word. And it's a kind of wisdom that, that gives us reason to evaluate people in part by their word. We evaluate whether someone is a trustworthy person, whether you can count on this person, or whether this is a person whose word is uncertain, that you better be careful before, before taking them for what they say. You see, Paul's, one of Paul's points is that don't think of Christ and the wisdom of Christ just in those earthly natural terms. There is actually a wisdom that is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ that transcends that earthly natural wisdom. It doesn't cancel it out, but it transcends that wisdom. And if you want to understand Christ and his gospel and his cross and his grace, you can't just think of him in those earthly natural terms. It doesn't take long for Paul to get to this theme in 1 Corinthians. Uh, much of 1 Corinthians 1 through 3 uh, is a discussion of this, of this peculiar wisdom that is found in Christ. It is a wisdom found in Christ crucified. That's not the kind of wisdom that this world, even at its best, can understand. Earthly wisdom doesn't understand the idea that God would become incarnate in humble form and would submit himself to a brutal death on the cross. That's not something that earthly wisdom, even at its best, can penetrate. That's something the Corinthians needed to understand in the midst of their many, many problems and conflicts that we read about in 1 Corinthians. It's also a theme that I believe Paul gets at, especially in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We see this strange, peculiar kind of wisdom of Christ at work in what Paul says about giving. That's his main theme in chapters 8 and 9. Now, even though he's not meditating on wisdom explicitly in those chapters, you think about what Paul says there about giving doesn't really, it's not really something you can understand according to an earthly or natural wisdom. You might remember in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about how the Macedonians how the Macedonians gave beyond their means, and he praises them for this. 
Now think about earthly wisdom, a natural wisdom, even operating well. Right? What's the kind of financial advice you might get from your parents? Financial advice from a wise elderly person. Live within your means. Right? Don't. Don't go above your means. You just get into trouble that way. Well, Paul praises the Macedonians for giving beyond their means. You might remember what else Paul does uh, in this discussion about giving. He says that in, out of the Macedonians' extreme poverty overflowed a wealth of generosity. Wealth flowed from extreme poverty. Now you might think back to your Economics 101 course. Right? That's not quite the way it works. Right? You learn about scarcity, you learn about supply and demand. Wealth doesn't flow out of extreme poverty according to an earthly wisdom that drives our ordinary economics. You see, Paul doesn't want the church to think about their giving habits just in terms of an ordinary, earthly, natural wisdom, the kind that you might helpfully learn in Economics 101. You see, there is a wisdom in Christ that, in Christ crucified, in Christ who, though he was rich, became poor for our sake, that transcends this sort of earthly wisdom. And so coming back to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 19 through 22, I think in this, in this light, we can appreciate what Paul is doing when he seems to get off point for what he's explaining. Because you see, as Paul is addressing the Corinthians' evaluation of him, a negative evaluation of him, he wants them to remember, you can't, you can't evaluate me. You can't evaluate my ministry just in terms of this earthly wisdom in which you're trying to figure out whether my word is good, in which whether my yes matches up to my yes and my no matches up to my no. There's a different kind of wisdom at work. You need to evaluate me in a different way. Now, when Paul says that his message is always yes, we clearly can't take Paul in an overly literalistic way. Sometimes Paul says no. You might remember in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he speaks about how the grace of Christ teaches us, as some English translations put it, to say no to ungodliness. That's a pretty important thing. Sometimes it's really important to say no. I was actually reminded of this recently. I've been on the road a fair bit these past few weeks, and I was sitting in a meeting recently, and I was mostly trying to pay attention to what was going on at the meeting, but I also had on my laptop screen, I had the Greek text of 2 Corinthians 1 in front of me, knowing that this was coming up and just wanting some pious reflections to be going through my head. And while I was half paying attention to to the text of 2 Corinthians and reflecting on Paul's message of yes, the person sitting right to my right, making a speech at this meeting, he wasn't talking to me, he was talking to someone else, he said, very impassioned voice, the most important thing that you need to learn is to say no. That was very striking when you're reading 2 Corinthians 1 and you hear that. But in context, he was right. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, we need to listen to Nancy Reagan's advice. Just say no. One of our major political parties is sometimes called the party of no. 
Sometimes I think people think of confessional reformed churches as the churches of no. And it's always nicer to be the yes. Yes is always nicer than no, but sometimes politically, many times ecclesiastically, the best answer to silly things is just no. So again, Paul, we don't read Paul literally. We know that Paul and sometimes ourselves, we need to say no to things. But you think Paul, he's instructing them how they should evaluate him, how they should evaluate his ministry. And it's not in terms of their earthly wisdom, but it is as a messenger of Christ. It is as an apostle of Christ. And the thing that they need to know about Christ above all is that he is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. God has made many promises and God is always faithful. He always keeps his word and it is in Christ that that great yes resounds because it is in Christ that God's promises come to their greatest and ultimate fulfillment. And you know what? That is not something that we can really understand by earthly wisdom, is it? Even by natural wisdom operating at its best. Because we look around and we observe, we experience the world, and it doesn't always seem, the evidence always doesn't point to the fact that God is faithful and that God is keeping his promises. When we see all the injustice of, in the world around us, and we see the church struggling, we see the weakness of the church and the false doctrine in the church and the divisions in the church and the immorality in the church. And we think about our own struggles with sin and our own failures and our own doubts. By an earthly natural wisdom, it is not abundantly clear all the time that God is faithful to his promises and is gonna keep everything that he has said. And surely that is why Paul continues after saying that Christ is the great yes to God's promises, that it is through him that we utter our amen. That is our great response to hearing that the promises of God are yes in Christ. We say amen, which is the response of faith. It's not through a rational process of observing and reflecting upon this world that we appreciate the fidelity of God to his promises. It is by faith, by faith in the God who promises and fulfills in Christ. It is through uttering that amen, even in the midst of contrary evidence as the world sees it. Paul seemed to be getting at something else and something very similar in Romans 4. Remember when he talks about there towards the end of Romans 4, how Abraham considered himself as good as dead, his wife Sarah well, well long past the age of childbearing, and yet God made this outrageous promise from an earthly perspective that they were going to have a child. And Paul says there that in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see the same themes here that Paul is working out. It's not because of earthly evidence 
a natural wisdom that we know God is faithful. But in faith, even against what seems to be strong evidence of the gainsayers, we believe that God is faithful in Jesus Christ. And there's another very, very fascinating similarity between Romans 4 and 2 Corinthians 1. Do you notice when I was reading some of these things from Romans 4 a moment ago, Paul says that uh, that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 20? That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Our act of faith not according to an earthly wisdom, but to a Christological wisdom that transcends the wisdom of this world. When we utter that amen of faith, God is glorified. When God promises and Christ fulfills and we believe, God is marvelously glorified. And if you feel weak, too weak to utter that amen, to the promises of God fulfilled in Christ, Paul understands. And he tells us, as we saw in verses 21 and 22, remember that it is God who gives you the strength to do it. It is not your own power that enables you to believe, that enables you to see with the eyes of the wisdom of Christ. God has established us in Christ. He has anointed us, I think, pointing us to baptism. It is he who has put his seal on us and he's given us his spirit as an arabone, as this guarantee, this this down payment that assures the full payment of all the heavenly blessings that are ours in Christ. It's time for us to bring this meditation to a close. I guess it's time for me to bring this to a close. But I just want to... I want to close by calling to your attention the beginning of a poem. I am not anything remotely close to a connoisseur of poetry, uh, but maybe some of you who are are familiar with the works of E.E. Cummings. And uh, I must have been introduced to this poem that I'm going to refer to when I was in high school. It must have been an English course in high school. And... Uh, for whatever reason, I think of this poem almost every time I read 2 Corinthians 1. The poem begins like this. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I don't know much about E.E. Cummings, but the little that I know, I suspect that he did not mean very much orthodox with that prayer. But I think he may have been onto something. To thank God for everything that is yes. There is a lot in this world which is no. There is a lot of unbelief. There is a lot of bitterness a lot of reasons to doubt, a lot of gainsayers. 
But what a comfort it is that in the midst of all the no's and all the reasons to doubt, that we have been giving a resounding yes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Surely it's appropriate to thank God for everything that is yes. And I suppose maybe to try to make this poem a little bit more orthodox, we could thank our God for him who is yes. And to do that on this amazing day, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you, not for a false optimism, not for a vacillating yes, which the world often offers, but we do thank you for him who is the fulfillment of your promises. Lord, you have made many promises. And we thank you that in Christ they find their yes. We pray, O oh Lord, that when we are afflicted by doubt and when we are afflicted with dark thoughts, when we hear the world around us scoff and say, where, where is this coming that he spoke of? That we would remember that you have wondrously already proven your fidelity in sending son, your son once in the fullness of time and for how he so wonderfully fulfilled what you had said. And we know that you will not fail to fulfill everything else that you have said, especially through his second coming and the revelation of the new heavens and new earth. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us that faith by your spirit who is that great seal that deposit of the good things to come. We pray that you give us strength to utter our amen in response to all those promises that are so marvelously fulfilled in your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.